0: One of the biggest challenges is, especially early on, is we be trying to we be trying to make change, um, positive change, change that we knew that would work, um, because we'd seen it happen before in previous companies and sit in, t- in different in, in similar industries. And it was just tough to kind of move it. So for us, you know, first and foremost, we need to make sure that we before we lean into any project, we have a seat at the table and we get to collaborate with um the decision makers in that business because some of the decisions we're making are going to be huge dial movers, but also um, ones that everyone needs to be aligned with. But more importantly, we need to be able to um, be able to gather data from all different departments. Um, one of the bigger challenges is, especially you're talking like B2B companies, you want marketing to do a ton of work, but you don't have all the sales data um, and you don't know how many calls you need to or how many cold calls you need to make to actually get a meeting set or how many emails need to be sent for a deal to be closed. But um, the first step is always like we need to make sure the data is clean. We need to make sure it's organized and we need to make sure that we can count on it. And then from there, we can really start building up the growth effort beyond that. Um, But it's always a a very important piece of any conversation we have is saying, hey, we need to be right there with you at the table, making the decisions together.
1: Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. This is all the fundraises acquisitions, bankruptcies, all all in consumer. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only, and is not investment advice. Today's episode, we focus on the wonderful world of consumer fintech. And our guest today is Drew Glover, who's a general partner of Fiat Ventures and founding partner of Fiat Growth. Fiat Growth is a growth consultancy helping to scale some of the largest fintech companies out there, Chime, Lemonade, Copper, they decided to launch a VC fund that focuses on emerging fintech companies, as well with, of course, Fiat Ventures. We discuss his journey into fintech, how Gen Zers are thinking about money a little bit differently than millennials, figuring out what's real and a real problem to solve versus a scam. Without further ado, here's Drew.
0: Drew, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: Ah, really appreciate you taking the time. Want to start from the very beginning of of your career and your interests. What what was your initial attraction to fintech and as well as you know marketing and kind of strategy side to actually building organizations?
0: I have a super unconventional path into both fintech and marketing. Um, grew up in the Bay Area. Grew up in a in a family that was. Deeply rooted in civic action and social advocacy. Dad ran a nonprofit. Mom was a principal in the Oakland Unified School District. Came from a family that was deeply rooted in just like the nonprofit world um, and philanthropy. And so I, I grew up in this coming from this place of really having like, you know, I believe a good high a good a great IQ, but also really great EQ in terms of just like how the world works, my exposure to all different socioeconomic classes. And um, that was something that I just naturally had in me um, and it was great to already have that wired at such an early age as I was kind of moving through the rest of the world. Parents put me in the private school so I had this like really interesting juxtaposition in between call like not extreme wealth but like middle to 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 to, to fairly you know wealthy folks and then coming back to like you know inner city East oakland and, and experiencing you know the the lives and the community that was there. Um, And then um, from there, I went to a private high school, um, Catholic high school. And then from there, I went to UC Berkeley. I actually played football at UC Berkeley, but that was the first first public school I had gone to. And um, between, you know, experiencing UC Berkeley, uh, you know, just a very progressive campus, but also even being on the football team where it was the first time I'd been on a sports team where it was like legitimately like 80 different people all from different socioeconomic backgrounds and we were so close and did, had so many experiences together, both on the field and also in the locker room culture that, um, I really started to fall in love with this idea of, you know, different people from different backgrounds that could be location-based, that could be based on like family dynamics, that could be based on their ecu- their socioeconomic class and really digging, in, digging into the personas and the archetypes of these different individuals. And, um, that just got me naturally invested and excited about the world ahead. Once I graduated college, I did a ton of things. I was in sales. I was in insurance. I was in HR tech. I did a ton of things. And um, I kind of battled with this whole challenge of, I want to make a ton of money. How do I make a ton of money? Uh, like all those kids I grew up with when when I went to private school. And um, and then once I started finding some really great um, experience and, and became a really great salesman, um, in some previous tech companies, I realized I was like, cool, I, I understand that I can make money, but how can I make money but also do good and make an impact? So I ultimately left uh, a sales role and, and when started working at a company called Steady. Uh, Steady is still around, a series C company um, platform that helps folks in the 1099 world improve their financial health. So big believer that the future of work is is just going to uh, massively shift in the next generations to come. People are no longer going to have one full-time job for the rest of their lives, but they're going to have multiple part-time jobs to create a full-time experience, kicking off with like the gig economy, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and so forth. Um, So from there, I was at, I was at, um, I was at Steady and, and I, and I ultimately started advising a ton of companies because um, I saw this shift happening in FinTech specifically. Folks were no longer just building products for the, Eight, for the 20% of America that already had money and just needed help managing it, but they were, they were starting to build products for the 80% of America that needed the most financial help and guidance. And that's where really I fell into my sweet spot where I wanted to work with companies but also build my own companies that help drive impact to the communities across America and frankly the entire world that needed the most financial help.
1: So it kind of you, your North Star or or what became it was um, how can we um, – when, when you think about these things like, okay, I, I obviously want to make a lot of money, but at the same time, how can I also give back to and, and, and work on projects that are actually meaningful and maybe – and are actually democratizing kind of financial products. It seems for um, uh, for people that are from you know maybe d- different social uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, different uh, different places, and and so that kind of it seems like became like more more so like your, more, your north star and kind of helping these companies grow. Is that is that r- r- roughly right?
0: Yeah, it took me a little bit more than a decade to um, find an answer that I wish I had known when I was like a lot earlier. Is that like? making money and doing good don't need to be mutually exclusive i think everyone believes that you have to choose either or like i'm either going to become an iBanker banker or i'm going to go work for a nonprofit. but in the world that we live in today there are so many ways to curate and craft um your kind of holistic way of work um in a way where you can do both um you can do good you can make money you can change lives you can make a massive impact um and so again, it took me a long time to realize that, but um it's a hundred percent, right? Like drive impact, have the life you want to lead.
1: Was there was there one company in particular that you were that you thought on the fintech side, like, oh my oh my gosh, like this company, what they're doing and um and in terms of how they're um helping people that maybe don't have, you know, a lot of savings or, you know, um, uh, uh, to be able to, uh, to be able to save or, or, or what have you, or maybe produce like a, a financial instrument that, that, that they did not have accessible um access before that, that this is, this is pretty interesting in that, you know, it's become like maybe a large company, but they're still be, be, be being able to have an impact.
0: Yeah. You know, there's a couple, um, you know, one that's kind of near and dear to Fiat. It's uh, we actually led their series a invested in their seed round as well. They've been a longtime client of Fiat. Um, is a company called copper. It's a, it's a teen bank. Um, I'm just such a big believer that like today's schooling is still not educating today's youth on money in the way they should. We're still talking about algebra and calculus and um a lot of math that you only need if you want to like go major in college um <laughs> uh, in math uh but not really talking about the X's and O's of business right like. If I'm starting a business, how do I run it? Like, what what do taxes mean? Um, You know, what does it mean if I'm a 1099 worker versus a W 2 worker? How do I engage with money differently in those specific instances? So, you know, what Copper is, it's a teen bank, um, but it's really focused on literacy, um, financial literacy, but also making it so you can digitize um, money um, at the earlier ages. I think we all remember when we were. 15 or 16 years old and our parents like walked us into a bank of america or a wells fargo and said hey like let's open up this this debit card um but you know what you can do with copper is you can not only manage your money and basically turn that allowance money into something digital and an actual card but they are teaching you along the way they're also teaching you about some of the stuff that in, in today's social media you can't run from That be like crypto, and like, what does that actually mean? You know, Um, how do I engage with that? And also, just keeping in mind again, the future of work is changing. Uh, Teens are working, like, they are reselling shoes on StockX, they're opening up Etsy stores. Like, there's no more lemonade stands in in front of people's houses, right? They're mowing people's lawns, they are accepting money via Venmo, they're looking for digital ways to store, save, and even potentially invest. Um, So, I'm a big believer that stepping below this, like, oh, you, you only see money and manage money for the first time in college going six to seven years younger where people are already engaging with money in super unique ways today.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And, and, and even on the job front, you know, it's really rare that somebody, you know, had the same job for, you know, 20, 30 years like like they did previously. And now it's, you know, if you're at a job for five years, it's like, oh my God, five years, you, you, you made it. Um, uh, <laughs> you, you didn't change, you know what I mean? Like it's, 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 uh, it's pretty bizarre and it seems like you know yeah certainly um when it comes to um you know obviously what you said previously about you know 1099 and, and, and w2 and 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 the relationship between um uh between those and um and and obviously like like the, the gig economy and and the different opportunities people have to work and also ha- also to have kind of side hustles if they want them um and so and and it seems like everyone's looking for a side hustle which i love i love to see it love to see it um everyone That's, is. Everyone is. Exactly. It's amazing. Um so how how did you end up founding um Fiat Growth and what was kind of the the, the synthesis behind it?
0: Yeah, so um what you'll the, the I think the commonality you'll see throughout the grow, the the growth of Fiat Growth, no pun intended there, is is uh everything was very much organic. Um so when I was at Steady, I was overseeing growth and partnerships. I also built out their, their recommendation marketplace. So I joined pre-launch and a couple years in, we had around 3 million users. And um, these were all folks that were part-time workers. And um, through that process, I actually um, helped stand up their recommendation marketplace. So to break that down, Steady was a money management tool. So, 1099 or part-time workers would come in, they would sign up for Steady, they would use the money management tool because it would help them better manage their work life um, because they had multiple part-time jobs. Maybe they were driving Uber, doing Lyft, and also doing DoorDash all at the same time, but needed to manage that money, all the way down to like expenses to taxes. And so because we had all these people using the platform, I built out their marketplace, meaning it was a marketplace that all of Steady users could use that um, was a list of, call it like 25 to 50 products that they should also be using to improve their overall financial lifestyle. Um, and so what I would do is I would actually um, build, I built a platform to recommend them products adjacent to what SETI was offering. Through that process, I had all these other companies trying to get inside of our marketplace to market their product to our users. So I probably have around 10 to 20 calls a week with different companies, like begging to get their product in front of steady users. And in this process, I started talking to a ton of really cool companies, some that were great for the marketplace, some that weren't. But whenever I met one that I thought was doing something really interesting, really through that thesis, right, the 80% of America that needed the most financial health, I said, hey, I can actually help you. Bring me on as an advisor, and I can help you scale up your business in super meaningful ways. And it just so happened I had reconnected with a really close friend of mine in college, Alex Harris. Um, He was at Chime, the super large neobank from series A to series D. And he was doing a very similar role. He was building out their marketplace at the time and was overseeing paid growth. And so me and him were both taking 10 to 20 calls a week almost. And we started co-advising a number of companies together. One turned into two, two turned into three, three turned into like 13. And we looked at each other and said, listen, like, there's something special happening here. There's not a growth consultancy specifically focused on fintech that we've ever seen in the market, especially one with our skill set. So after it got to a certain number, we looked at each other and said, hey, let's quit our day jobs and let's found fiat growth. What fiat growth has become today is the leading uh, fintech focused growth consultancy in the country. Um, We're a team of a little over 30 individuals full-time and we have over the last four and a half years. So it's been four and a half years since we quit that and started Fiat. We have um, basically hired everyone we wish we could have hired in-house um, as we were kind of going throughout our career. Like it's the who's who, it's like the A team. And, um, and basically what we've done is we've kind of created this, this culture within Fiat where we say no a lot more than we say yes. We have co- companies reaching out to us all the time. And the reason why we're so picky is because from day one, we had a very unique model we get paid in a flat retainer, we would get advisory shares in the companies we work with, but we'd ask for the right to invest in every single company. We didn't have the money at the time, but we knew at some point we wanted to be able to invest in the companies that we were helping scale to the moon. So in 2021, we actually founded Fiat Ventures, which is our venture fund. And in in 2021, we founded that. In 2022, we closed our venture fund with a $25 million fund. And so what we do now is we have Fiat Growth and we have Fiat Ventures. They're two separate entities. However, we get the right to invest in everyone at Fiat Growth. And when we work with them on the growth front and we see all the tea leaves aligning, at that point, we decide if we want to lean in with a a check from the Venture Fund because we've worked with them in the trenches and we know the business that's being built and we know why it's exciting. We know why it's a smart investment. And most importantly, we know that the founders have the right DNA to build a billion dollar business.
1: Now, on the fiat venture front, do does a company have to work with fiat growth in order for for, for you all to invest?
0: No, no, not at all. Um, around 60% of the investments we made to date have been from fiat growth. The other 40% are companies that we see in the space that are just doing really interesting things based on the trends we're seeing. Um, so the the marriage between fiat growth and fiat ventures is, is super unique um, because... Keep in mind, we've worked with over 120 companies at Fiat Growth. We've driven over a billion and a half dollars in revenue, but we only invested in 17 of those companies. Um, so because we're asking for the right to invest doesn't mean we're going to invest. It just means we have the ability to. Um, and so what Fiat Growth also gets to be is this really incredible education arm for us so when we get really excited about a trend in ventures we're like you know let's go get a couple clients let's scale these clients up let's do incredible work for them but let's also learn by doing you know like we want to learn about crypto and blockchain like let's go get a couple companies in the consumer space that's kind of like bridging the web 2 web 3 line and um, and then really just go like do deep learning in that space so we can like build out our thesis and thought on where the the market's headed in that specific area
1: and so when you want to like learn about a space, I'd imagine, um, um, that's that that you're. It doesn't mean you're just gonna get, like, get involved. For example, in like whatever that trend is on the on the fiat growth side, right? It it um, the companies obviously have to be um like interesting to you and and meaningful and in, in, in terms of the, the value that, that, that you can add.
0: Yeah. So I think it's really important just to state the type of work we do. I think when people hear the word consultancy, a lot of them think Bain and McKinsey and like, oh, you're just giving me a hundred page deck and telling me to do the work. Like when we say growth consultancy, we are true operators and executors. So when we work with the company, we're typically acting as their outsourced growth team. Um, when I say that, I mean like, don't hire a CMO, don't hire any growth marketers, let us come in and we'll do everything. From standing up your marketing technology infrastructure to make sure your data is clean and crisp to standing up your partnerships org and actually going out and closing partnerships for you in the space, both strategic or embedded. That means us managing every imaginable paid channel. that be Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Google search. I could keep going down the list. So for us, we become their outsource team. Um, So to your point, like when we are working with a company... um, We're always leading with, can we add value first? And if we can add value, you know, um, do we believe this is an investable business? Yes, we 100% do. We love what they're building. Great, let's bring them on as a client. And then- when I talk about like us sometimes going out from an educational standpoint, it's the difference of us just like kind of sifting through our inbound leads versus us saying, let's go find some companies we're really excited about that we believe we can add value to that we also just want to learn more about that specific space so we can just keep sharpening our tool set around how we can be better investors and how we can be better growth marketers.
1: On the on the venture side of, of uh, for yeah, ventures, how do you think about what, Um, well, I guess also this is pertaining to, uh, uh, for growth as well, because it's, it's, it's kind of what, what companies are interested to you, but how, how do you kind of identify what problems that you want to see, um, solved and that the companies that are actually solved in terms of what's maybe like a real problem in, in, in the finance fintech world versus one that you don't think that maybe as much as a problem at all.
0: Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great question. Um, the way you ask it's really interesting a lot of times we see really interesting trends in the space and then we look for trends and then we when we are talking to someone that's that's in that trend we start hearing what their what problems they're solving and then we then we say hey that's an interesting problem or that's not an interesting problem um so to answer your question specifically around the problems right like i think one is access um historically Access to low to middle income communities across the world, um, with specifically within fintech, have been very high. Um, I, I think a very simple example is like the, the um, call like investment app, app revolution, where historically, you know, to go invest in a stock, like if you weren't, if you didn't have someone that you knew in finance, it was very, very hard to do. Now, of course, you have the proliferation of Robinhood and public.com. And I could go down the list of you can literally download an app, upload your, your debit card and just go invest in just about any stock you want, both a full stock and a fractional stock. But access is still kind of rampant across the entire country um, in terms of being able to have access to products, to financial products that are, improve your financial health. And I think about it in three buckets, help you save money, help you earn money and then help you build generational wealth. So we're constantly thinking about access as it pertains to those three pieces and how can we basically work with, how can we be working with companies that are help lowering that access barrier to provide financial access to all the communities that are in need of it most?
1: No, that's that's really helpful. So it's it's focusing obviously on access um, and, and the three kind of buckets um, in, in terms of like maybe like an overall theme um, um, access and, and, and as you say, like help, it has to help you save, earn or build generational wealth. Um, and in terms of your, your focus, in terms of, are they solving like a problem that's in that sphere? Um, um, what, what, when you look at companies?
0: Yes. Oh, and I'll just quickly add, you know, it's, um, it's important for us to have a thesis, but to not put hard parameters around it. Um, there's, so many incredible minds out there, so many incredible founders, so many incredible ideas. Is we want to be in, a, you know, we want to be, we want to know the direction that we're walking, um, but we don't necessarily want it, the street to be narrow. Like we want it to be as wide as possible so we can truly take in all the opportunities we can, assess them in the way we need to, to make it so we're not missing opportunities in the, in the, in the spaces that we find the most impactful.
1: Got it. And on the fiat growth side of things, when do you typically become involved in a company? Could it be very early on? Like How how early is is too early?
0: Short answer is never too early. Um, uh, also, short answer is never too late. Um, we're very much stage agnostic. Um, but I will say we try to keep a pretty healthy kind of 50-50 split. So... Um, Basically, Series A and below is around fifty percent, and then Series B and above is around fifty percent. Um, we, the difference in terms of how we do work with these companies, typically Series A and below, we are truly like their outsourced growth team for a lot of the time. Like you know, they don't have a team in place or they have one person, and so we're able to really come in and and scale them up and get moving and and building out their their growth infrastructure and then actually building out the different growth channels that are most pertinent to them. Kind of keeping in mind that most of their goals are like, how do I get to the next round of funding? So we're understanding, okay, great. What goals do we need to hit to get to that next round of funding? Let's reverse engineer that and let's build it up. And um, I think what a lot of people don't really understand is the most mistakes that are made on marketing is making emotional decisions when you have data that provides you the ability to make logical decisions. And a lot of people say, hey, this worked at a previous company, so it should work at this company. Um, But really what marketing, the essence of marketing and the art of marketing is how can I do um, fast, small tests, iterate on those learnings, do the test again, iterate and test again to basically come out with a ratio of 70, 20, 10 spend 70% of my money on the things that are working, spend 20% of my money trying to beat what's working, and then spend 10% of my money on experiments that are good, good ideas, bad ideas, and everything in between to see if we can just like get one of those moonshot uh, growth strategies off the ground to like dwarf everything else. And I'll just say on the on the upper end of that, for some of these larger companies, we're kind of just like taking a very specific uh, arm of arm of their growth effort. So sometimes it's, hey, take over affiliate marketing. Sometimes it's, hey, we don't have a TikTok strategy. Can you stand that up from us from the ground up? Um, so it's a little bit more piecemeal than some of the earlier stuff. But, um, you know, there's special projects that pop up in between everything.
1: On the earlier side, dealing with earlier companies, when you're um, when you really are, you know, effectively like the CMO, um, essentially, and, and like the marketing, um, uh, side to the business, what tends to be some of the challenges, um, on the marketing side in terms of how you like approach your funnels that maybe, maybe whereas what what you've taken over, it was, oh my gosh, this is so different than that. Maybe how, how I would do it or, 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 what you perceive would be successful or, um, yeah. Yeah.
0: If you want to go for it? No, yeah, well, it's, it's interesting and, and if you go back to like when we first started like we've learned a ton um i think the the biggest learning we've had is we don't really take on a project unless the team is willing to give us a seat at the executive table um one of the biggest challenges is especially early on is we'd be trying to we'd be trying to make change um positive change change that we knew that would work um because we'd seen it happen before in previous companies and in, in sit in, in similar industries and it was just tough to kind of move it so for us, you know, first and foremost, we need to make sure that we, before we lean into any project, we have a seat at the table and we get to collaborate with um, the decision makers in that business. Because some of the decisions we're making are going to be huge dial movers, but also um, ones that everyone needs to be aligned with. But more importantly, we need to be able to... Um, be able to gather data from all different departments. Um, one of the bigger challenges is, especially you're talking like B2B companies, you want marketing to do a ton of work, but you don't have all the sales data. Um, and you don't know how many calls you need to, or how many cold calls you need to make to actually get a meeting set, or how many emails need to be sent for a deal to be closed. But um, the first step is always like, we need to make sure the data is clean. We need to make sure it's organized and we need to make sure that we can count on it. And then from there, we can really start building up the growth effort beyond that. Um, but it, it's always a, a very important piece of any conversation we have is saying, "Hey, we need to be right there with you at the table, making the decisions together."
1: How also do you think about? I understand that on the investment side, you're you're very focused on accessibility, a- accessibility for um, for financial financial pro- um, uh, products. Um, how also do you think? of generationally um and maybe generationally generationally might not be the best way to um uh, uh to talk about this but like um how do you think about how different generations kind of think about money maybe differently like uh, really kind of thinking about gen uh, gen z and millennials because i feel like they kind of get lumped in a lot of the times um and i know that gen z is um Still, I think it's what like uh, seven years old up to like twenty six or twenty seven. If I am, uh, uh, if that's roughly right, so yeah, that's still, right. That's still, right. still extremely extremely young. But from your own view, and since you are dealing with, you know, I'd imagine quite a few companies are kind of targeting these two um, these two generations. How do you think about um, how each generation maybe is thinking about money a little bit differently?
0: It's a great question, and again, like it's very much in my sweet spot. I am just such a believer that money is getting younger. Um, and I'm a believer that um, the way the media's been curated um, over the the last couple decades here, um, it has inspired people to believe that some good, some bad. That you you can you can make money at any part in your life, and um, how you spend money is is just like naturally shifting. Um, I think I always like think this in my head. I was like, when it comes to money, people aren't perfectly rational people are perfectly irrational and that is constantly what we are competing against it's um it is trying to teach from a literacy standpoint the many parts where rationality needs to come in and also mitigate or being able to teach people how they should assess risk there is one thing i believe in this next these next generations is i think people are naturally going to become riskier when it comes to money making decisions and that has become that is because we are in this golden era of it's the easiest ever to create a business it's the easiest easiest we, easiest we've ever seen um for someone to go make money at doing something um if you have the entrepreneurial spirit if you have the drive and the grind like you can figure out a way to sell a good and make money for it Um, and so from my standpoint, um, the biggest call out is is really this idea of risk and being able to help the next generations understand how to assess it. Um, I don't I think it's gonna be virtually impossible to tell them, you know, what good and bad risk is, but the best we can do is approach them about like how can you assess risk? What is the outcome of that? Um, and then also really help them to think about the three things I was talking about, right? Like, what is the benefit of saving money? What is the benefit of earning money and what's the benefit of investing money and driving generational wealth? Um, right now, um, and this is just natural with any type of call like younger generations. It is I make money, I spend money, but um, they're not thinking about the certain things of if I save money, how can I make more money in the future? If I invest money, how can I make more money in the future? Um, but the access barrier for those types of actions are as low as possible like I said earlier. Um, so, Again, being able to think about risk and teach risk in, in a very calculated way to me is going to be the difference between um uh, uh, an incredibly educated generation and and one where um and one where there's just a question mark. You know, I battle with it all the time. Um, and I, I work with companies like Copper again to 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 work with them around how literacy is kind of rolled out, and um I think it's very interesting to see the data that rolls in. From call it um, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, in terms of you know how they want to earn and how they want to spend, and also who they're looking up to and saying, "Hey, I wish I was like this," because if I had that money, this is what I would do with it.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. When I think about risk and um, what's you know been happening and the number of companies that have been coming up and just almost redefining like what's actually investable. Um, versus versus not like thinking about like we had a company on called um uh, on the show called vino vest where you can um where you can invest in 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 fine wine and um and then of course there's you know a number of other companies that where, where you can do the same thing fractional ownership when it comes to art and and other types of um and, and, and other goods that 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 have long-term value and so and it's interesting to see like the appetite for for these types of products and in terms of what um, and what, um, and of course they're, you know, I would say more risky products, um, um, probably than, you know, investing like in like the, 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 stock market or, you know, a, a Vanguard, for example. Um, uh, but, um, it is, it is kind of interesting to see what, um, like changing a bit of like the definition of like what actually, um, what actually is considered investable versus like not investable, maybe like 20, 30 years ago.
0: Yeah, you know, um, culture is becoming more and more powerful within fintech. Um, you talk about these different things that we're investing in today. Call it, um, call it wine, call it, call it art, call it freaking trading cards. Um, the market shifts up and down based on how culture responds to these physical goods. And um, the same thing in some way goes for the stock market today, but historically so many people have put such a high barrier there that the the foundation that's been built within the stock market is like, you only know if you're making the right decision if you're super smart. Like you have to be a well-informed investor on paper. invest in the stock market we've seen means meme stocks take runs at this type of mindset but for the most part it's still very like core to the culture of the stock market of you know and also there's so much regulation within the stock market as well that like um investing in that is is very different than what we're seeing what you can invest in today. I've seen it. We invested in a company called here.co where you can invest in short-term rental properties and you get a, a monthly dividend based on the cash flow that comes from that cop that that property. Um again, like I'm a big believer that uh the short-term rental market's gonna continue to grow over time. And uh, that is a less risky investment um than you going and investing in a card. Um, but that's the thing, and that's when I talk about evaluating risk for these next being able to evaluate risk properly for these next generations, because all these additional markets that are going to be created, all these additional fractional markets that are going to be created, so you can invest $2 instead of having to buy the full bottle of wine is going to make it so anyone can get into it. But if you don't understand the risk, then you also risk losing big, and also winning big.
1: I, I love keeping on this idea of culture and, and, and investing in culture, which I really loved how you, um, said that and, and put it as, as you're thinking about a number of different companies that gives the, gives the, uh, accessibility to invest in, you know, culture products, whether it's trading cards, whether it's, um, whether it's, um, wine or, um, or, you know, art, um, how do you think about the ones that will actually stick? And be here to last versus ones that okay maybe they appeal to this particular generation but i actually don't think it might be here maybe in the long run or it might or it might there might be a crash of it like thinking um like i think that NFTs are like for example here to stay but we've definitely seen like a huge crash of it right over the past like two years and it's and especially you know with with some of the big NFT communities that you buy into, we've definitely seen like the valuations drop considerably overall in that market. So I'm just, I'm just thinking of here about how, um, as an investor, how are you thinking about these different types of products?
0: So I'll get back to the core question you had in a second here, but in terms of how I think about it, there is one big lens that I haven't brought up yet, and it is the risk that all of them run. And it's a very fine line. Are they predatory? There are so many of these products that, um, and I'll go back to the example of, um, payday loan stores that you'll see like in the inner city everywhere. You know, I just got paid a thousand dollars, but I need $1,400 for the month. I'm going to get a $400 loan at a, you know, freaking 75% interest rate. Like I basically need to pay it back tomorrow before I start losing money. Um, they are predatory because they are putting their stores in communities that need it the most and they are putting people in debt in like a very big way and they're doing it and they're raising their interest as high as possible because they know they'll do it because some of these folks are desperate um you know like the nft like the nft market i do believe there's a space for nft for the for the nfts for the future but like a very large percentage of the buyers of nfts we part where this was this 80% of America that needs the most financial help. Um, and it's very similar to like selling lottery tickets at gas stations, right? Like a lot of folks are thinking that it's a get rich quick, which rich quick scheme. And they're getting it in front of the people that need to get rich the quickest um, and also need the most financial help. So you talk about access and you talk about making an impact. There's a very fine line between making, making, uh, providing a type of access that actually becomes predatory to communities. Um, so as a VC, as a VC and, and just someone that I'm typically working with fintech companies, I'm constantly looking at that under a very, very fine microscope. Um, that is also a big piece of culture because, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, the 80% of America is the, is the part of America that drives the culture, um, of America. Uh, it's the rich people that are buying the culture that is driven by the the folks that are most financially at risk, and so um, it's a really interesting it's a really interesting um, concept to think about. But um, just making sure that the that the the next generation of these businesses are being lifted up by the people that 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 they need as customers, but they're also providing a product that's tr- that's providing them help. And positive impact to their overall lifestyle, and um, so I do believe that uh, there's going to be some markets that that live and die. I do believe that like physical goods will have a market. I think you know, you know the whatnots of the world and the rally roads. Like the biggest things they're going to run into is is being able to to properly put regulation around this. One thing we haven't spoken about at all is the regulation around these products. Marketplaces have been built regulation has not come in yet. And the regulation wave will either stand up or break down a number of these companies. So I do believe these, these, these different businesses will stay. But um, once they hit product, like true product market fit, and they hit scale, there will need to be regulation around who can partake, who can't partake, you know, how are you actually valuing these products? Like, can you just say, hey, this is worth a million bucks? Or like, how are we actually evaluating these things? Like this is why like companies like Christie's auction house used to exist, um, and now you know we just have other marketplaces that have popped up that you know they don't have anyone, they don't have a museum curator there saying this is worth this much. They just have someone saying this is how much I'm willing to sell it for. You know who wants a piece of it?
1: When you're analyzing companies, I know that 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 really the uh, the major theme um, and of, of investing is obviously access, um, and, 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 and building, you know, financial products that maybe that, that are, that are accessible to more people. Um, how do you, how do you balance too when it comes to make sure that they aren't predatory and as well as also thinking through like what regulation could look like as this company, if this company is successful, what that actually, um, means long-term.
0: Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we we need to have a clear, very clear path. If not, it's already done from a regulation standpoint. And a lot of times, that is like acceptance by the SEC. This is approved and so forth. Um, in terms of evaluating the companies, it's um, it's a tough path, and this is just in general. Like, and also this this market has shifted. Um, it's. Frankly, on paper, just not as exciting for a founder to start a company right now. You're not getting a twenty million dollar valuation without a product and just like a really cool deck, right? Like, you know, there's a different type of DNA out there. Um, so I, I, I mean, frankly, I've been really, really excited as a, as an investor to be a part of what the market looks like today, um, because. There's a different type of founder ilk in DNA that's coming out of the woodwork. These are folks that are like built to last. These are folks that can, um, that have like really great, call like economical, like one on one on one mindsets. They're like, listen, I want to make it so this money lasts me as long as possible, but I also want to make it so I find product market fit as quickly as possible. And I'm down to fail fast and win big. And, um, so it's been very refreshing in terms of what I've seen from a lot of the founders that have, that I've been engaging with as of late. Um, I think two years ago, I think a lot of folks said, I want to be a founder because that's the quickest way to wealth versus I want to be a founder because I want to build a product that's going to make a massive impact on the customer that I want to impact. And I am here to build it until, you know, we ring the bell, um, in New York. So, um, so uh, i am very much inspired by by the type of founders that we're seeing come come to us these days
1: has it been has it been easier in some ways to um find which partner which kind of um founders you want to partner with today as opposed to you know kind of in the in the boom of the economy over um say call it 2020, 2020 uh uh 2020 2021
0: I think some people would have different answers here like we had a lot more opportunities in two years ago, um, a lot more at bats, but, um, it was tougher to find the right pitch. Now we get way less at bats, but a lot of the pitches are like in our zone. Um, so I, I personally like it right now, um, because the hard part two years ago was deals were moving so fast that someone would come to you and be like rounds closing in two days or you in or you out. And I'm like, dude, I get, I have LPs, I have investors that pay me to do diligence to measure an opportunity in a hundred different ways, a hundred different times. And so, sorry, bro, the answer is no. You know, now we we have some really incredible founders that are coming to us. And when we get excited about it, we're like, listen, this is great. This is our process. It's going to take us X amount of time um, to properly evaluate this, but. We like you, we like the product. Now we want to dig in to make sure that like, this is something that, that really fits our thesis and, and, and we believe it's investable. So personally I like now, um, but I'm telling you, like it's, it's always, it it was a little bit fun in the wild west, but, um, it was, it was, it didn't make my life easier. I'll tell you that.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, what, can you, can you talk to me a little bit about like how the timeline maybe has changed? From 2021, because I remember, you know, obviously as you said in 2021, like people are like, okay, you need to invest now or else the rounds close in two days, blah blah blah. How has that timeline like changed as of now? Is it like like in terms of what did it take you six weeks to to run diligence and like in um has that um uh back then and now it's you know longer or it's or 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 did you have to speed up your timeline though back then just because rounds were going much quicker and now it's slower? Like what? What kind of in like the number of days or, or weeks did it takes you to actually like in invest in a company that you liked?
0: Yeah. So first and foremost, like we, we really started deploying towards the end of 2021 and it was kind of like on the on the tail end of like a lot of the craziness. So we never got truly caught up in in, in the wild, wild west of that time. Um although we were assessing deals during that time and It was our first fund, so we were like, "There's no way this is normal." (laughs) Like, you know, like people just come to you and say, "Like, I got this opportunity. Like, you know, let me know tomorrow." Um, In terms of our process, our process is 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 pretty streamlined. You know, we are we are three GP set, and then we have um, a a VP on our team who's also in the uh, investment room. Um, And it really depends on the type of deal that's coming in. If it's coming from fiat growth, and we've already had them as a client, we have already organize like this data and we have a clear perspective not just from the 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 investors at fiat ventures but the entire growth team that's been working directly with that client on fiat growth and it is a streamlined operational process where we're basically getting like a big manila envelope of like yo this is why or this is why you shouldn't and then we're kind of diving into our own streamlined level of diligence um if we haven't spoken to that business um it's still pretty streamlined i mean the good thing for us is is We are early stage, so it's not like we're investing in Series B and Series C companies where we have five or six years of data to sift through, Um, but we're investing in team, we're investing in product, we're investing in total addressable market, and then um, we're also investing in um, what that business is building in the market today and why we believe that that trend is aligned with um, becoming a billion-dollar business over the next 12 to 15 years. um on either side we're pretty streamlined i also think that's one of our superpowers of of when a company comes to us you know they know that we're not going to string them along for 2 months like we're going to give them a yes and a no and we also value uh, we also know that getting a no sometimes is just as important as getting a yes when you're in the middle of trying to curate your own cap table
1: yeah this is um no i that's um i appreciate that it's i think that this is also an interesting period when you think about emerging managers especially emerging managers that raise in 2020 and 2021 and um were um part were you know uh participants in like when when companies the, the valuations were really kind of like sky high rocketed right um and now um i'd imagine many companies are you know going through maybe bridge rounds or uh, or you know t- kind of tough times right now and it being since it's you know your first fund you can't kind of, when you're raising your next fund, you can't point to kind of past performance from your first fund. And the fund might actually not be performing nearly as well, just because we're just because many of the companies are in bridge rounds. Um, And so my point being, it seems like you were able to avoid that because of the actual period that you raised in and the fact that the markets were already, I guess, turning um, at your point of view, is that roughly right or not
0: really? It's roughly right. Um, I'd actually say the reason why we were able to bypass a lot of that was because of fiat growth. We we were able to really, and again, when the markets get crazy, um, we knew that we had to lean on what we believe is our best asset, which is fiat growth and our ability to do so much thoughtful diligence by doing the work with clients prior to investing. So for us, you know, We were not, if we did invest in a company that was like maybe valued a little bit higher than normal, we were doing it from a place of we know exactly why versus we're just doing it because Sequoia also invested or we're doing it because some other VC invested that we we believe in. So the diligence that we get from fiat growth gave us the ability to measure risk in such an important and powerful way that we felt we were able to wade through you know, late 2021, even early 2022 in a very effective way. Because, again, that engine that we built there gave us the ability to kind of see through, frankly, any of the bullshit. Um, Because there was was a lot of data floating around during those days where it's like, even from the growth side, everyone was trying to say, oh, great, we have all these accounts opened, which means, you know, they're one day going to be users. When as growth marketers, we know, doesn't matter how many accounts you have if you're a bank, it matters how many funded accounts you have and how much money is in those accounts and you know how many different bills and transactions they have connected to those accounts to make them a revenue generating user. So like you know we just know and it's also organically built into Fiat as a whole, how to assess those types of businesses specific to Fintech because that's where we focus.
1: What is one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally?
0: I've been reading a lot of business books, so I'm going to give you two professional ones. So bear with me here. Um, first is uh, The Ride of a Lifetime, Bob Iger. Um, his biography of starting out as a basically like a marketing associate um, to becoming um, the CEO of Disney um, and, and and being a part of so many incredible acquisitions and generations of media was an awe-inspiring book. Um, I was like on the edge of my seat. He's talking about relationships that he had with Steve Jobs and the purchase of Pixar to the acquisition of Marvel to, you know, going through like years of going through the politics of actually becoming the CEO. Um, And then the, other one is Unreasonable Hospitality, which probably has has me both professionally and personally, per, per, personally. but um, un- Unreasonable Hospitality is the story of Eleven Madison, which was named the best restaurant in the world years back. And um, basically, it was in the, through the eyes of the co-founder, but also the general manager, and how he built a culture around unreasonable hospitality to become a three Michelin star restaurant and the best restaurant in the world. Um, but the way he thinks about hospitality is something that you can bring back into your personal life, into your work life. Um, and frankly, gives, gives like, inspires you to um, think about these like surprise and delight moments that you can weave into your day-to-day life that will just enhance everyone's world around you amazing
1: we so we so on this show we've had ride a lifetime come up a bunch um but we've never had unreasonably hospitality come up so drew you are very original thank you for uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh for adding these um and um drew this has been so much fun thank you so much for your time
0: thank you then, and
1: there you have it. It was, was a pleasure chatting with Drew. Drew, thanks again so much back. for coming on the podcast. And um, If you're enjoying the show, I highly recommend also subscribing to the newsletter at thecontinerovc.com. The thanks also for
0: listening. The general manager and how he built a culture around a reasonable hospitality to become a three Michelin star restaurant and the best restaurant in the world. Um, but the way he thinks about hospitality is something that you can bring back into your personal life, into your work life um and frankly gives gives like inspires you to um think about these like surprise and delight moments that you can weave into your day-to-day life that will just enhance everyone's world around you
1: amazing we so we so on this show we've had ride a lifetime come up a bunch um but we've never had unreasonably hospitality come up so drew you are very original thank you for uh, uh, (laughs) uh for adding these um and um Drew, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your
0: time. Thank you.
1: And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Drew. Drew, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. If you're enjoying the show, I highly recommend also subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumerbc.com. Thanks for listening.